0: Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here, coming to you via the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com. Moving right along, we're picking up where we left off last time in Part 1 of our overview of the Chinese Civil War. In the last episode, 119, we looked at the mediation phase of the Civil War, or War of Liberation, as it's called in the PRC. The forces led by Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong had been... Slugging it out since the late 1920s. But thanks to the Japanese invasion and the involvement of the Americans and Russians in China's internal affairs, I might add, the two sides are forced to delay their duel to the death. But not now. Not here in Part 2. No, the Americans have gone home, and now it's the PLA versus the NRA. And to the victor goes all the spoils. Coalition government... Forget about it. That train already left the station. That, that boat already sailed. In this episode, we'll mainly look at the year 1947, the year the Truman Doctrine was announced, although things were by now already quite chilly. It's with the Truman Doctrine that many call the beginning of the Cold War. And as I mentioned in the previous John Service episodes, once China was lost, air quotes around those four letters... The Cold War went into overdrive. By 1947, most of the foreigners who had somewhere else to go had already left. And trust me, when I say the sentiment amongst the expat crowd as they headed for the emergency exits was that the communists and all their sympathizers and enablers were ruining a good thing for them in China. We ended last time with the Communist forces, now branded as the PLA since May of 1946, taking and holding the city of Harbin in Heilongjiang province. The year closes with Jiang counterattacking in the north and northeast, launching his so-called strong point offensive. And amidst this hostility and fighting, George Marshall, in his sheer and utter frustration after conferring with President Truman, headed back to Washington, this time for good. At the start of 1947, Chiang Kai-shek and the whole nationalist regime couldn't have looked any better on paper. They were in control of 80% of China. Jiang's prestige was at an all-time high. But starting in 1947, whatever remaining popular support the nationalists enjoyed is going to be eroded at a very fast clip. They're going to be outperformed and outmaneuvered on the battlefield. And in domestic affairs concerning the people, the KMT will blow it big time. With all this real and imagined prestige that Jiang enjoyed, he decided he finally had sufficient political capital to make a sincere effort at reforming the party and the country. He saw what was going on and heard the public outcry against the stagnation of the economy and the corruption of his officials. No matter the generalissimo's sincerity, it was a case of too little, too late, and simply not having the management team in place to implement the plans. Jiang's latest reforming efforts, like all other attempts on a national scale that came before, turned into another opportunity for whoever was well-positioned to do a little profit-taking from the system. Despite Jiang's sincere efforts, nothing came of this. The KMT had all this power in their hands, but for a number of well-known reasons, corruption most notably, these plans failed. By mid-1947, hyperinflation was destroying the economy, adding to Jiang's military troubles and making a mockery of his proposed reforms. Capital, capital, fled the country for safer markets in Hong Kong and Southeast Asia. Sadly, in 1947, China's largest source of income came from U.S. loans. Unemployment skyrocketed as the black market became the mass market, and legitimate businesses all suffered from this disruption in the economy caused by the financial and monetary crisis. This, in turn, had a ripple effect that meant... High unemployment, loss of a tax base, the usual stuff. John Kai-shek had more on his plate than just dealing with the CCP. This wasn't a zero-sum game between Mao and Chiang. Just because people were losing faith in the KMT and turning away it didn't mean they became Mao people. Far from it. This was especially so in the cities. In the countryside, the peasants had learned over the years not to expect any great things from their leaders. One of the facts of life for the peasantry, going back to, say, oh, the Han Dynasty, had always been the occasional visit from some army. Armies marched in and marched out of all these villages and small towns in China and throughout the Civil War. But the peasants invariably suffered from the whims, poor discipline, and political measures of whoever was passing through. Communism, socialism, capitalism all meant nothing to this part of the Chinese populace. They were famous fence-sitters who embraced whatever was conducive to their well-being. And in this respect, this was how Mao ultimately won the day in the countryside. Land reform, propaganda, indoctrination. Mao was determined to get these guys off the fence. So he called for more militarization of the countryside. After land reform happened at many villages, the peasants said even more so this was a reason not to abandon the land and fight in the PLA. Now they had land to till, so it made no sense to walk away now. So this was another obstacle to recruitment faced by the PLA. This was another reason that for so long, the peasants always opted to be spectators of the Civil War. But there were still multiple uses for the peasantry beyond firing a gun. The CCP cadres would get them organized to handle a thousand other tasks that would also serve the PLA. They could dig ditches, carry stuff, treat wounded, supply grain, destroy railroad tracks and telegraph wires, you name it. The communists, as everyone probably has read, did a masterful job at organizing the masses in the countryside to... Chip in to take part in a whole myriad of critical non-combat roles. In this way, too, the PLA was taken care of, and the revolution turned out in their favor. Even though 90% of China's people still lived outside the urban areas, Jiang's strategy was to consolidate himself with the 10% first, and then when all was secure, then he'd get around to dealing with the 90%. But Mao's strategy called for the opposite. So the NRA, National Revolutionary Army, Guo Ming, Ming Jun, the troops led by the KMT, they started off 1947 with a bang, taking more than 150 towns back. But they didn't wander too deep into the countryside. As I mentioned last time, the PLA forces in the Northeast, under the command of Lin Biao, held on to the city of Harbin. Jiang was able to shoo, lean away from other major cities and towns in Manchuria, but not harp in. That remained a communist stronghold. Still is today. Concurrently, while all this was going on, you had a student movement that, like the student movements of today, just sort of grew very quickly from a seed. And even without the social networking tools we take for granted today, the message was disseminated effectively. These students were not communists. They were mostly anti-war. KMT didn't want that. In fact, neither did the communists. But these student marches became more and more regular, vociferous, and bigger in size. And because the economy had tanked big time, the working men had it much harder than usual, and then strikes began breaking out everywhere. Every day in Shanghai there were workers' strikes, and you never knew when you'd be affected by you know, whatever services the grievance of that day was directed at. When the students and the workers began to see the potential synergies in joining together, the two groups united, as they so often do in modern history. Even today in other countries, you'll see the students and the workers joining together in their demonstrations. These two groups were usually calling for the same political and social reforms. Affordable tuition and access to education, higher pay, less working hours, benefits, and both sides were against the Civil War. They were anti-inflation and for reforming the economy, and they wanted something done about the massive unemployment. Well, you can imagine the KMT and CCP pulled out all the stops to infiltrate all these student organizations and these unions. They were becoming a political force to reckon with, and both sides attempted to influence them. While we're still in uh, early 1947, let me back up a second and mention the 228 incident, also referred to as the 228 massacre. When I lived in Taiwan during the summer of 1980, a couple of the many things you didn't want to be overheard talking about was Mao Zedong and R Ba means 228, February 28th. In Taiwan, you couldn't openly talk about this until 1995, once former President Li Tenghui mentioned it. Then it was officially okay to add this topic to the public discourse in Taiwan. The Japanese, as you no doubt vividly remember, had occupied Taiwan since 1895 when they grabbed it for their own after the Treaty of Shimonoseki. Now, I'm sure no one likes any foreign power lording it over them. But at the end of the day, after 50 years, the Japanese occupiers hadn't done too bad of a job running the place like they did. Well, you remember, I'm sure, from last episode, Civil War Part 1, how after the Japanese surrendered, the KMT rolled into all these major cities and towns of Manchuria, and many of them carried their carpet bags with them, and the foul odor they gave off from the abuses carried out under their authority quickly turn the locals against them. Not so much that they were, you know, uniting and rising up and taking to the streets, but more than enough to turn popular sentiment against them. So in this kind of dynamic that existed in early 1947, with local resentment against these KMT types from the other side of the strait and their heavy-handed tactics as soon as they got there, all it was going to take was an incident. And just as it happened in Tunisia on December 17, 2010, so it happened in Taipei on February 27, 1947. A seemingly minor incident occurred when the Taiwan equivalent of something similar to a Chenguan or street enforcer confiscated the meager inventory of some 40-year-old woman street vendor selling bootleg cigarettes and whatnot. And for good measure, they roughed her up, too, right in the public. Pistol whipped her brazenly in front of all those hanging around that stretch of Nanjing West Road. People crowded around the officer yelling abuses and spouting a little good old-fashioned outrage at how he had treated this street vendor. And before you knew it, the scene got ugly and one of these enforcers from the Tobacco Monopoly Bureau, who knows what was running through his head, he fired into the gathering crowd and one of the protesters gets shot and killed. Back in those days, the KMT didn't have the firepower available in Taiwan in numbers sufficient enough to put down any major disturbances like they suddenly had on their hands. And with this incident that happened on February 27th, and especially into the next day, on February 28th, 1947, the outrage by the locals was rather substantial. The protests were loud, and the message was... Hey, everything was fine here until you guys came. You know, Jiang had big plans for Taiwan. He didn't know yet that that's where he'd ultimately be ending up. But back in the hopeful days of 1947, he considered Taiwan crucial to his future plans for China. So when all these reports made it back to him that suggested the local people had other things on their mind, well, something had to be done. It took more than a week until March 9th, when there was sufficient muscle on the ground shipped across the strait from Fujian province. Once Jiang had everything in place, let's just say he quelled the uprising, and the numbers vary from 10,000 to 30,000 killed over the actual putting down of the protests and the Shanghai massacre-style political white terror that followed. I'm going to reserve further remarks on the 228 incident until I go to Taiwan in 2014 and do a little more local research. I just wanted to mention it here as it shines a little light on the difficulties that Jiang faced while trying to consolidate power after the Japanese went back home. He was trying to handle a whole lot more than waging this war with Mao Zedong. So, more on 228 on another day after I've been more properly schooled in the history of that place. Same with Xinjiang and Tibet. I won't get too deep into the details here as I want to make these two topics standalone series for a later day. The big picture for the purposes of our episode today was like this. Look on a map of China. If you overlay the whole map of China onto a map of the U.S., New York City would be about where Shenyang is and L.A. would be way out in western Tibet. Most of the action in China, oh, since about the time of the Yellow Emperor, maybe even earlier, always happened in the eastern part. The United States, oh, we're doubly blessed with two long seacoasts on both sides of the country. China's only got one. So while we have Seattle, Portland, San Fran, San Jose, Vegas, Phoenix, San Diego, LA, and Claremont all on or near the West Coast, China only has Urumqi and Lhasa, no West Coast. So the action was always in the East. And the farther West you went, the less was the government's power of gravity. Always was. Well, not anymore. But way back when, it wasn't so easy to govern those places directly. So wouldn't you know it, the Qing Dynasty keeled over in 1911 and died, and then all these warlords rushed in. The people of Xinjiang and Tibet, you know, with nobody watching them anymore, had gotten a nice little taste of autonomy. Tibet had worked out a deal whereby they said, hey, yeah, we're part of China. But they had a very long leash as far as autonomy there and how they wanted to do things. So when Jiang decided the time had come to go reassert authority there, the locals weren't so sure they wanted to join the Republic of China. Plus the British because of India, were still in Tibet and had the heir of the leaders, the Dalai Lama chief among them. So this added an interesting dimension to the backstory. Britain felt an independent Tibet would act as a far better buffer between China and India than simply relying on the geography that separated these two giants. Nehru also thought this was a good idea and tried to influence events in this direction. But at the end of the day, neither the Brits nor the Yanks were willing to ante up in Tibet. So they moved out of the way, and Jiang thereupon slowly began to assert control. In Xinjiang, Jiang had to deal with the ETR, the East Turkestan Republic, that had been set up in its second incarnation in 1944. Guess who backed them? Joe Stalin. That's who. So they weren't going to be a pushover. Jiang tried to bring them to heel, but it wouldn't be until after the establishment of the PRC that Xinjiang was indelibly printed on the map of China. That's a whole long future series. While Chiang Kai-shek was busy taking control of Taiwan, his efforts in the north and northeast, you know, with his strong point defensive, were bearing some fruit. The PLA was fighting for its very survival, the NRA generals who were leading the charge all over the north of China were Li Zongren, Fu Zoyi, Du Yu Ming, and Hu Zongnan, and it's Hu Zongnan who is going to lead them to their most glorious yet hollow victory of the Civil War. On March 12, 1947, with 150,000 troops and 75 aircraft, the KMT 1st and 29th Armies charged into Mao's Yan'an base for 12 years This obscure town in Shanxi province had served as the communist military and political base since the conclusion of the Long March in 1935. The troops led by Hu Zongnan blew in there, and despite Peng Dehuai putting up a respectable defense with only 20,000 men, there was no way to hold back the shock and awe of the NRA. This battle, Chiang Kai-shek was determined not to lose. General Hu Zongnan, unbeknownst to him, had a mole in his office. His own personal secretary it said she had been feeding details of the upcoming assault on Yenan to her handlers who got word back to Mao's guys. So the communists had a good two weeks to methodically close the shop down and move everything, even the printing presses, that some of them might have been even spitting out pamphlets since the Jinggangshan days. Everything got moved out, along with the entire top leadership of the CCP. Mao elected to abandon Yan'an, only because he didn't feel like borrowing forces from elsewhere to defend this important base. It wasn't only his capital, it was also the control center for the whole Ning Chu, which, as the name suggests, was the military region of the CCP that controlled parts of Shanxi, Gansu, and Ningxia. Once he learned from his informant what kind of force was going to be knocking on his door, Mao knew that to fight this battle might end up being a bridge too far. So he opted to bail instead. And Mao famously said as he left, We will give Jiang Yan'an. He will give us China. The leaders all split up and fled to the north and to the east. Then on March 29, 1947, they all met up in the remote village of Zhao This is north of Yan'an, about 200 kilometers west of Taiyuan in neighboring Shanxi. Hu Zongnan would hold on to Yan'an as long as he could, but he'll cash out in 1948, abandoning Yan'an to its rightful owners. Mao, Zhou Enlai, Ren Bishir, Liu Shaoqi, Zhu De, all one happy family. There in Zhao The top guys had a powwow and discussed strategy. Mao then ordered everyone to the Ji region. This was another military region, this one covering uh, Shanxi, parts of Inner Mongolia, and uh, Hebei. By April, everyone was in place. Now, it was hopefully going to be clobbering time. From here on out until the last holdouts are flushed out in 1950, it's a lot of battles and military speak. I know a lot of military enthusiasts live for these kinds of details. Well, if you came here for a blow-by-blow commentary of each battle, I regret you're not going to get much satisfaction here. Unless anyone has an objection, I'm just going to look at things from a more macro viewpoint. Otherwise, this series will run 100 episodes long. I can assure anyone who wants to read the fine print, there's a lot of materials available on the web about... Every day of every Civil War battle that happened between the KMT and CCP. Starting in the spring and summer of 1947, the tide is going to turn inexorably in the direction of the PLA. The PLA had taken quite a beating in Manchuria during the waning months of the Marshall Mission, Remember last episode, that's why Marshall went back home. He was trying to mediate and Jiang Kai-shek was yaying him and, you know, throwing everything he could at the PLA, even flying up to Manchuria to lead things personally. Marshall saw what was going on and he wasn't going to waste any more time, so he bolted in January 1947. As Marshall was packing his bags, Mao Zedong was planning his grand strategy for 1947 with the same core group of military leaders that had been with him since the 1920s and 30s. One of these leaders, Zhu De, he had been with Mao since the day he marched into Jinggangshan in 1928, almost two decades, side by side. Jiang didn't enjoy this luxury with his generals to the extent that Mao did. And as I said, the cooperation he got from his generals was was not nearly as solid as what Mao enjoyed. There's a lot of battles and campaigns at places you probably never heard of. Niang Guan, Tang Ar Li, He Shui, Nan Ma Lin Xu, Tai An, Lin Fen, and many others. Lin Biao, in the meantime, was still holding down the fort up in Manchuria and still in control of Harbin. Jiang tried his best to dislodge him, and he emptied a lot of cities of PLA troops and cadres but not Harbin. In addition to Manchuria, there was the matter of going after the bases established in Shandong under Chan Yi's leadership. This is the communist Chan Yi, future foreign minister of China. There's also a KMT general of the same name, though uh, a different character. Chan Yi had taken a, a beating just like Lin did at the end of 1946. But on Lunar New Year 1947, the year of the pig, Chen Yi hit back real hard, and now Jiang had one throbbing headache dealing with Lin Biao in Manchuria and Chen Yi in Shandong. Chen Yi was facing a terrible onslaught in Shandong. He had wired Mao for permission to retreat, but Mao wouldn't let him. By July 1947, it had gotten so bad that Mao finally ordered Chen Yi to retreat, and his army split up and scattered in five directions where they would Live to coalesce another day. And they did so and came back and took Jinan less than two months later in September of 1947. The NRA lost 100,000 men off their roster in this campaign fighting Chen Yi in Shandong. After retreating from Jiang's strongpoint offensive for much of the first quarter of 1947, Mao called for organized summer, autumn, and winter counter-offenses in Northeast China. There's fighting going on all over the place in China, but as you've seen from pretty much from the start of the Civil War, all the real action is taking place in Manchuria, North China, uh, and Shandong. Mao and Jiang both know that place in particular had to be taken. There's too much industry, technology, and rail transport. And since 1935, the North and Northeast have been Mao's turf. Or at least, he was effective in operating and organizing up there without impunity. Jiang's strong point offensive, though effective at first, later sort of petered out and the PLA was able to hold their base in Harbin, though bruised and battered in some places. Mao knew from this point on that the NRA could be beat. The PLA summer offensive took 50 days, and in that time, the communists were able to strengthen and consolidate themselves in the northeast. They snatched 42 cities and towns back, and it was the momentum gained in this summer offensive that gave rise to the autumn offensive. This one was also fought in the northeast, and the communists, between this offensive and the one finished in the summer, had killed more than 150,000 more KMT troops. Fifteen more cities were taken during this autumn offensive. The northeast was almost under PLA control. Almost, but not quite. The success of this offensive forced Jiang to move six whole divisions from the south of the Great Wall up to the north. This thinned him out drastically down in those more southern positions. Let's focus in on one place that was being fought over almost throughout the entirety of 1947. This was the town of Siping in Jilin province. Why did Jiang and Mao fight so hard to hold that place that I'm betting most of you have never heard of before? Not once, but three times. This, I guess you could call it, obscure city in the northeast of China served as the location where one of the most critical showdowns between the KMT forces and the CCP army took place. Siping was located right where Jilin, Hebei, and Inner Mongolia sort of come together. You pretty much have to pass through Siping to get in and out of north and northeast China. The PLA had done its best to defend Siping after they had taken it in early 1946. Bandits and former Japanese soldiers had been recruited by the NRA to hold the city for them, not real NRA troops. And then forces led by Li Fuchun made fast work of them. But once Jiang heard si Ping had been taken, he worked fast to win it back. And after a massive onslaught from Jiang's forces during the Strong Point offensive, the PLA forces had to abandon si Ping on May 18, 1946. The CCP had no choice but to give up Xiping si so that the PLA forces could live to fight another day. And that day had come. The Siping Yi or Siping campaign, was launched in May and June of 1947 and lasted about nine months, ending in March of 1948. Mao knew how important Siping was to Jiang and their whole war effort. This was going to be Mao's payback for Yan'an. The PLA began laying siege to Siping, 100,000 strong. By the time they started to lay siege... Siping had been fortified with the NRA remnants from other battles in Tieling, in Liaoning province, and in Changchun. In the next episode, we'll hear more about Changchun. This is the capital of Jilin province and also served as the capital of the Manchukuo puppet state. The NRA hung in there at first. They weren't as easy to beat as originally thought. By June 28th, Lin was feeling the heat and had to withdraw from his positions, Jiang sent him packing from Siping, but he didn't defeat him. The PLA was still new at this kind of warfare. Their calling card had always been the so-called mobile warfare, hit-and-run guerrilla tactics. Now the PLA was fast becoming as much of a conventional fighting force as their KMT opponents. The PLA, of course, was led by Lin Piao, who faced off against the NRA forces commanded by General ming Mingren, Jiang had contacted General Chun personally to tell him that if they lost Suoping, they very well may lose all of the Northeast. He got that one right. This winter offensive that I spoke about, it lasted about three months, and like I said, concluded with the taking of Xuping by Lin Piao. This was a bloody battle. Second half of June nineteen forty seven saw some of the most brutal combat that the whole Chinese Civil War would see. This was a bare knuckle fist fight with the communists prevailing early on but afterwards being forced on June 30th to make a retreat to regroup. The details regarding these two weeks in slipping are so numerous and worth looking at that I decided in mid-air I might add to make this whole slipping campaign a podcast topic in itself one day. I'll decide when I get to Jilin one day, and I'll make sure to be there in June, not uh, between November and April. So Lin retreated, regrouped, and then they went at it again. This time he was better prepared. In the dark winter of 1947, and then into 1948, Lin Biao and his army drove the sword through the nationalists in Siping. It was an utter and complete defeat for Chiang Kai-shek. Not only was this... Very important, symbolic, and strategic city lost. Also lost were more than 35,000 very hard-to-replace troops. And on top of that, a treasure trove of arms, equipment, and ammunition that fell right into the communists' hands. I mentioned last time that one of the more popular jokes told about those days was how Chiang Kai-shek had turned into the greatest arms supplier to the PLA. In the earliest phase of the war... 1945-46 the best supplies that the PLA could get their hands on and they were thankful for this was captured Japanese equipment seized after the surrender some of it they captured on their own and sometimes you know they didn't know how to use it or maintain what they got most of it though was captured Japanese equipment that fell into Stalin's hands first and then he would later divvy it out to Mao as he saw fit As thankful as they were to have this Japanese equipment, the PLA really was hoping for the good stuff. And back in those days, the good stuff was made in USA. All of this American equipment was going straight to Chiang Kai-shek. In 1947, trust me, the Coms had been written off by Washington, and then the U.S. went and doubled down on the nationalists. By 1947, with every defeat suffered by the NRA... Inevitably, some or all of their U.S.-made arms, ammo, and equipment would end up becoming property of the People's Liberation Army. Su Ping was a major score for them. You know, I read also not only did the comms capture all this U.S. equipment, sometimes corrupt KMT military officers with access to the supply chain would just sell it to the PLA. And that's how the winter offensive of 1947-48 finished off, with the taking of Siping on March 13th, 1948. That was where the war was going to enter a new phase. 1947 gave us Jiang's strong point offensive, which didn't end badly, but not as well as Jiang hoped it would. He did get Yan'an, though, and got to kick his feet up in Mao's cave. But all in all, despite plenty of good news... 1947 wasn't a happy year for the KMT, the NRA, or Chiang Kai-shek. The summer, autumn, and winter offensives in the Northeast were all ending badly for Chiang. And in March of 1948, when Slipping was lost, the whole KMT military upper crust had to be thinking about a plan B. The NRA wasn't totally finished off yet in the Northeast. Everyone knew the prospects for taking back the lost territory in Manchuria and being able to hold it were dismal. Jiang's loyal general, Chen Cheng, and others like him, knew the Northeast was lost, and to keep on throwing troops at Lin Piao, Zhu De, Chen Yi, Nyerongzhen was just futile. They had been beat fair and square in the Northeast, and now, in early 1948, the Communists were simply dug in too deep. Manchuria was was no Yenan that could be taken with brute force. Now, the communists were a more formidable foe than they appeared to be in 1945. There was a sentiment floating around the top that believed Manchuria should be abandoned so that all those resources and troops tied down fighting a lost cause could be sent south to deal with guys like Liu Bocheng and Deng Xiaoping, Ye Jianying, Li Xianyan, and a host of other PLA luminaries operating south of the Great Wall. But to walk away from Manchuria would have been too symbolic a defeat for Jiang. It would utterly negate all the glory and prestige earned from capturing Yan'an. If Jiang capitulated in Manchuria, it would be too big of a hit, both militarily and politically. So Jiang Kai-shek refused to back down. This was a mistake those troops tied down in Manchuria might have made a difference against the PLA forces in China proper and in the south. You'd think that by listening to this podcast up to this point that it was curtains for Jiang. We've only been looking at what was happening up in the very north of China and in the northeast, and there's more to China than this region. We also glanced at Tibet and Xinjiang. No matter who was going to emerge victorious from the civil war, those two Western regions would be dealt with at a later time. But besides Tibet and Xinjiang, you still had Zhejiang, Jiangsu, Anhui, Hubei, Hunan, Fujian, Guangdong, Guangxi, Yunnan. All of this is yet to come in the next episode. This part of China was always Jiang's power base. The communists did not hold sway around this part of China, and they were gonna to have to conquer it. Armchair historians have said, if only Jiang had heeded the advice of certain of his most trusted loyalists and retreated to this part of China, the outcome may have turned out differently for him. To draw a three kingdoms parallel, Mao in the northeast would become like a Cao Wei kingdom. Jiang in the south would act as the Sun Wu in the Shu Han Yeah, hard to say, but as I said, Jiang did not give the okay to abandon Manchuria to the communists. He fought on and kept digging his grave there. You see, this was the other thing about Jiang. History has sort of written him off as more of a military politician rather than the field commander type. By 1947 and 48, the Soviets and Mao start to bury the hatchet, though not too deep. And there's Now, much closer cooperation. Soviet advisors will be flooding into Manchuria to help Mao's forces with their war effort. And Stalin, though he still thinks Mao has the whole communism thing wrong, knows in his heart, Jiang and the KMT are going down for the count. So Stalin holds his nose, so to speak, and starts to build a bridge of cooperation with the CCP. And Mao also begins to de a little as far as his attitude about Stalin is concerned. In fact, it's right about now, late 1947, early 1948, that Mao begins to take steps to sort of emulate the Soviet leader. Jiang, too, is going to keep a pipeline to Stalin open as well. Jiang will see, in 1947-48, how the winds of anti-communism are practically dictating U.S. foreign policy as it relates to China. So in order to secure the necessary U.S. loans to get him through his short-term problems, Jiang will flirt with Stalin and scare the Americans just enough so that they keep the loan spigots on. That sword has two edges, as Jiang figures out later. Stalin, of course, is happy to play along as he knows this is secretly infuriating the Americans. Plus, he isn't writing Jiang off yet as... He still might have some uses to the Russian leader. Next episode, our story will begin to move south. As I said, up till now, all the fighting has been confined to the northern part of China. For more than 12 months, the NRA and PLA have fought a focused and concentrated war in the north and northeast. With the end of the Siping campaign, it's not all over for Jiang, but sure is looking that way. In 1948, Mao is going to take the fight south, and next time we'll look at the three great campaigns that did it for the CCP. These were the Liaoshan, Huaihai, and Pingjin campaigns. It won't be until April of 1949 that the PLA crosses the Yangtze and advances into southern China, but we'll see after those three big campaigns, Jiang's forces are softened up enough so that 1949 will be mostly about finishing off the NRA and taking control of the South. And then we all know what's going to ultimately happen on 10-149. Whether or not we will get to that moment in the next episode, we'll have to wait and see. So that's about it for this time. We'll see if we can finish off this topic in the next episode, or if this one will go to four. This is Laszlo Montgomery again, and as usual, signing off from the very... Farthest edge of smoking hot Los Angeles County here in the City of Trees and PhDs, Claremont, California. Thanks for listening, and I hope that you'll be perhaps joining me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.